Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It's been a crazy and even more disruptive time in the world of travel these days. More airline employees lose their jobs, more hotels close, and more cruise lines are sending ships to the scrapyard. Joining me this week, our resident cruise ship historian, Peter Canego, on the acceleration of ship retirements and what it means to you. Then I'll speak to Moisha Rafia. He's the CEO of Skyscan and his report on key travel data, who's really traveling, where they're going. And then my conversation with the founder of AirfareWatchdog.com, George Hobica on the real fear factor when traveling, how many people are actually getting sick from air travel, and who's actually behaving. First up, Peter Canego. I call him our resident maritime historian. He's really a cruise ship geek. It, I can say that affectionately because he knows the history. He knows the pedigree, and he knows the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly stories of just about every ship that's on the ocean. His name, Peter Canego. Welcome back, Peter. Hey, Peter, thank you. I'll, I'll wear that with a badge of honor coming from you. So you'll t- Okay, and I'm, I'm happy that you'll do that. <laughs> uh, you know, every time we're on the show these days with you, uh, yeah. we're getting an update on more and more ships that are leaving us. Uh, yeah. Accelerated retirements, if you will, in many cases before their useful lifespan. Uh, and what's particularly disconcerting to me, I mean, I love ships. I love boats of all kinds. But what's particularly disconcerting to me is I'll watch these YouTube videos uh, that are shot uh, by crew members of Carnival ships or, 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 or Monarch of the Seas or former Royal Caribbean ships, and, you, and they're taken usually from the bridge. Everybody's in their dress whites. The bridge looks immaculately clean with all the latest electronic gear, all the latest navigation uh, gear. Um, everything looks beautiful. And what are we watching on the video? The ship being run at full speed aground, intentionally in Turkey, only to be scrapped. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm feeling like the grim reaper of cruise ships because I've been reporting on so many of the, you know, the downfall of so many just last year familiar, happy cruise ships that have met their end at Aliyah. Uh, I don't know if you saw the latest one of the Imagination, Carnival Imagination beaching, which was even worse than the one of her sister Inspiration a couple weeks before, because the Imagination literally rammed into and sideswiped the fantasy. Uh, you could see the lifeboat davits popping off as the hull of the one ship rams into the other. And just two weeks before, on the other side of fantasy, the inspiration did the same thing. So it's just, it's just really sad the the carnage. And then, on top of that, the speed with which they're demolishing these ships because they only have limited space here at this port in Aliyah to break the ships. And this is the only place where they seem to be going now because it's a EU sanctioned yard. So you've got the monarch of the seas crammed into the sovereign of the seas both former monarch of the seas and sovereign of the seas. Sovereign is a third demolished now, which is unprecedented. In only two months, they've they've scrapped her all the way to the midship's pool, it looks like, from the latest footage. Then you've got the imag- inspiration, carnival inspiration, carnival fantasy, which is about a fifth gone now. They've got her whole forward superstructure missing. And then the carnival imagination freshly arrived. On her way now, as we speak, she just left uh, Cadiz in Spain, is the Carnival Fascination, which was the fourth ship in that series of eight ships. So there will soon be four Carnival Fantasy-class ships on the beach together, waiting in Greece, maybe to be spared, because there is no berth for them in Turkey now, are the former Zenith and Horizon of Celebrity Cruises. They were supposed to go to Aliyah. But now there's talk of them reviving Pullman Tour cruises. So if that happens, then it would be foolish for Pullman Tour to scrap the only two ships they have left in their fleet if they're going to come back. So maybe there's hope for them. All right, let me, ask, just, let me ask a stupid yeah. question. Of all mm-hmm. the ships that you just mentioned, if we hadn't had COVID-19, would they still be sailing? Yes, yes. They've all, they were sailing full. They were doing great. Um, you know, even the Carnival Fantasy class, which is a dated platform of ships, they don't have that many balconies, although they tacked on a few uh, on some of the ships later in their careers. They were sailing full and popular. I had just visited the Carnival Inspiration uh, a few months before COVID struck. and She was sailing full capacity on, on cruises to Ensenada and uh, Catalina out of Long Beach, right next to the Queen Mary. Yeah, these ships were still viable. I mean, their 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 time limit was up. They were, you know, probably going to go in three or four years, but this just immediately accelerated their minds. And wow. today they just announced uh, Morella Dream, which was the former Homeric, the last ship built for Home Line, and later became Holland America's Westerdam. Very, very popular ship. They've just announced that she will not be coming back, and she will likely be sold for scrap along with the Morella Celebration, which was the former Holland American Nordam built in the 80s. So uh, there's a lot more carnage to come. Uh, and, you know, the longer we wait for cruising to come back, uh, it, the picture just isn't looking good. Is there any one cruise line that's going to weather this storm better than any other? I think probably Carnival, just because they have such a vast fleet. You know, they, they, can, they can lose half the fleet and they'll still have 50 ships. 
So I think that they're in a great position. Royal is in a great position as well, and Norwegian, uh, because they have vast, you know, pocketbooks, and they can probably weather this and end up selling some of their fleet off uh, and still have some ships left uh, when the, the flight goes up and it's safe to cruise again. And then what about some of the smaller lines? Those are the ones that are the most endangered, because a lot of the smaller companies just don't have the capital and the ways to uh, keep afloat with, you know, they can't pay crew uh, if they're not making income to, uh, uh, you know, keep the ships running. So I think that the the smaller lines are probably, well, they're certainly the most endangered, as we saw with with CMV and uh, Pullman Tour and uh, probably another few that are going to, you know, fall as uh, as we have to sit through this crisis. Well, speaking of CMV, they had, I think, what, seven or eight ships uh, many of which we remember because they had other names at one point. And one of the ships that yeah. they had, which had many names, which we did a, a television show about, you were in the show with me, uh, is the Astoria, which many people remember. Well, now I won't say many people remember, but some might remember as the original Stockholm, which was the ship that rammed into and sank the Andrea Doria back in 1956. We were on a cruise with her in the Sea of Cortez in January, I believe. Um, yep, and that was the last cruise I think it did. Where is it now? Well, she's in England. She's not owned by CMV, um, so she's actually owned by a Portuguese bank that was chartering her to CMV. So the bank is having her towed back to Lisbon, and she is for sale. And they will have an auction uh, to to sell the ship if she's not sold by the time she gets to Lisbon. They have another ship, a very beautiful old uh, Portuguese liner called the Funchal, that's also for sale. And, you know, prospects aren't too good for these ships. They don't have balconies. They have tiny cabins, and they're just not large enough to, to generate a profit uh, sailing the high seas. So it doesn't look good. But, you know, our little Astoria, she survived so many mishaps and so many uh, name changes and careers over the years. Maybe she's got another life left in her. I certainly hope so, Peter, because it would be fun to go back and celebrate her 80th birthday with you. Well, right now she's, I think, at 72 or 73, which is which is amazing enough. Uh, yeah. a, a cruise ship that would be... Se- now, there's one ship out there that's even older, which it's a cruise ship, but it's really a sailing ship. That's yeah. the Sea Cloud. Yes. Oh, my God. And what a beauty she is. Uh, they were trying to bring her back later this year, but they I think they postponed all their sailing now uh, to the mid of 2021. But Sea Cloud built as a private yacht for E.F. Hutton, the financier, and Marjorie Merriweather Post, the serial heiress magnet. And they built her in Germany. She was designed by William Francis Gibbs, the great American naval architect who did the SS United States, of course. Um, and she sailed as a private yacht called the Hussar around the world, taking the Hutton family with their daughter, Dina Merrill, who became a big movie star, looked like Grace Kelly, beautiful woman. And they, they sailed the seas throughout the 30s. And then Hutton and um, Post divorced and Post married the U.S. ambassador to Russia. So they turned their yacht basically into a place where the dignitaries, European dignitaries, would meet in the pre-World War II days. The ship just had a tremendous career. Then she was sold to the Dominican Republic dictator, whose son brought her to Los Angeles in the mid-50s and had affairs with Joan Collins and Georgia Gabor on board. Uh, <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> and until, until he was 
the ship was called back by Trujillo, the Dominican dictator. He said, you can't be doing this. And they brought the ship back to the Dominican Republic, but Trujillo got assassinated. So the ship was seized by the government and sold and sold and sold again. Five in the late 70s as a yacht. They added some cabins on board so that you could carry up to 60 guests. Where is the ship now, and how old is it? Well, she's laid up right now, Peter. I think she's in Hamburg. I'm, I'm not specifically sure where they have her, but their main offices are in Hamburg. Um, and she sails the Med in the summer, and she does the Caribbean in the winter. Uh, and what's in really incredible about her is the dining room and the lounge are pretty much original, except for the furniture. All the beautiful wood paneling. They literally removed the wood paneling put metal backing behind it, and reinstalled it. They spent millions just to keep this aspect of the ship safe uh, during the new Solus laws that came around, instead of stripping the ship and ruining what made her so special. So she's like a time warp. It's like stepping back into 1931 all over again. The suites are kept original, too. The, the main suites that were for the Hutton family are still as they were. Some of the furniture has been changed. And they have this wonderful party on board uh, midway through the cruise, usually, where the guests in each of the suites are given the option to open them up, and they have champagne and caviar. And all the other guests, like me, who are in the rebuilt suites, get to come down and see what life is like in these gorgeous creations from the early 1930s. So uh, the ship is really, really special. And it was the second to last cruise I did before COVID struck. So if that ends up being the second to last cruise I ever do, I will be eternally grateful for having sailed on the sea cloud. Wow. But you think it's coming back? Oh, yeah. Well, if anything comes back, it will be coming back. And like I said, it's scheduled for middle of next year. They've got a new ship that they've just finished, um, which is also scheduled to debut next year. And they have a, a third ship called the Sea Cloud 2, which is, which is gorgeous, but doesn't have the same history and, and ambience of the original Sea Cloud. Well, speaking of new ships, you know, seven months ago, before we were all consumed with coronavirus, virtually every shipyard in the world was operating at 100% capacity, building every kind of ship every kind of size and pedigree you could imagine what happened to all those ships well they're still there and you know we almost had one of them uh the scarlet lady virgin cruises first ship she she made it to england just in time to open up for the press and then they shut her down immediately afterwards because of covid and maybe that was a good idea because some of the design concepts didn't quite work i think um the Scarlet Lady was designed by people who weren't ship people. So a lot of their concepts sound good on paper, but they don't didn't apply themselves too well to the ship itself. So I think they've been taking this time to sort of regroup and redo a few things about the Scarlet Lady and her sister ship, which has also just been completed. So there's there's two virgin ships that the world has yet to experience. There's a new Saga ship, the Saga, the British cruise line for 60-plus people, uh, she's just come online, too. They've delivered her. And those are absolutely gorgeous ships, midsize, uh, lovely atria. They have um, great facilities on board, very tastefully decorated. So hopefully they'll be back uh, when cruising resumes. The new Carnival Mardi Gras. Um, actually, she's just called Mardi Gras. Thankfully, Carnival didn't put the prefix on her name. Named after their very first ship. She's the biggest ship. She's LNG-powered, uh, the biggest ship in the Carnival history. And she's on her sea trials now. She's 
been uh, she's being constructed in Finland. So she's one of the more exciting ships that's due to come online, and several others. It's you know the the world of cruising hasn't stopped. These the ships that were being built at the shipyards were continuing to be built when the shipyards were able to open up. It, now it's just a matter of time when we'll be able to experience them. Yeah. And you've got, what, the Ritz-Carlton has one or two ships coming out. Uh, yeah. Silver Sea has a new edition called the Silver Moon, which yeah. I think is going to be a fascinating ship. And, you know, so they're still coming. Although in the old days, by the way, I have to remind everybody, the old days was only seven months ago. They weren't <laughs> replacing ships. They were adding to them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Big difference. And now, of course, yeah, they are replacing them. It's amazing. It's amazing. And where do you think price point's going to go? Do you think there are going to be discounts? I think there have to be discounts in the beginning to get people motivated. Uh, but I don't expect those to last very long uh, because they have to absorb and, and, and pay for all of this downtime that they've been experiencing these cruise lines. So I do think, yes, to get people stimulated and, and excited again, that they're going to have to do all sorts of things. I think the big ships are going to have to sail with reduced capacity and reduced pricing uh, to get people motivated enough to go on them. But once they start filling up again, you know how it is, as it is with the airline. The prices are going to go up, and you're going to start paying more for all the extras. But the good news is, at least in the short term, if you want to go on a cruise, you know it's not going to be full. You know they're going to practice social distancing, and you know the price is going to be right. Yep. Yep. One silver lining. Well, for the moment. For the moment, a silver lining. For the moment. My thanks to Peter. We've certainly seen a major pivot when it comes to traveler behavior. Where we're going, where we're not going, and how far, literally, we're willing to go. Moishe Rafia, the CEO of Skyscanner, weighs in with the real numbers, as well as a surprise, which airlines are actually leading the way back. In a data-driven world, my next guest knows a few things. He's the CEO of Skyscanner. And right now, all the algorithms are probably out of whack. All the demand projections are probably no longer valid. Price controls are out the window. But if anybody understands what's going on, he does. Uh, Moshe Rafia, how are you, sir? I'm very well, Peter, and thank you for having me on the show. So if I take a look at just airfare alone, and, you know, based on year over year, this year was such a a complete, you know, mess uh, in terms of trying to figure out pricing and trying to figure out demand. Uh, not just in this country, but worldwide. What trends are you seeing now as the world is trying to emerge from COVID-19 and trying to get back out and travel? Well, Peter, the the first thing we're seeing is that there's a huge pent-up demand for travel. So travel is actually, people really want to get out and travel again. So we're seeing huge demand in the search volumes. Of course, bookings are still uh, much lower than uh, the previous years. But the real trends we're seeing is that domestic travel is uh, outpacing the international travel. So in North America, for example, we're seeing a very uh, high uptake in uh, domestic travel. And uh, similarly in uh, Europe and countries that have been able to actually control uh, COVID uh, and remove restrictions, we're seeing almost 100% back to travel uh, demand in countries like China, South Korea and uh, Japan as well. And those are all regional, of course. But when we talk about North America, you know, if you take a look at the city fares, um, I was looking at some statistics the other day that saw in New Orleans a 63% drop in what a ticket cost over year over year. 
uh, a drop in fifty uh, percent in Las Vegas, and and uh, you know even a bigger drop in, in other destinations that you would never expect to see such low fares. I guess the question, Moisha, that I need to ask is, traditionally, when there's been no traffic, uh, you know, airlines have and hotels and travel providers in general have tried to discount their way out of it, uh, basically lowering fares so low that to stimulate traffic. That doesn't seem to work this year, does it? Well, it's actually really interesting because everything, as you say, is a little bit upside down. But uh, because airlines have also reduced capacity, um, in order to actually get the demand back, they also had to actually reduce fares. So we're seeing the average booking value actually drop down in majority of uh, domestic markets and, of course, also in international travel. I mean, we're seeing like airfares from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas at $51 or New York to Los Angeles at $130. I mean, unheard of fares just to fill seats, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, the, the load factors are still probably reaching between 50 and 60 percent, and that's really not enough for the airlines. So they really need to continue and uh, discount the fares. There's no other choice for them. Exactly. Now, I'm talking to you tonight in Greece. Uh, you have experience there in terms of, of travel because they're a country that did open up and then didn't open up and opened up again. What's the situation there in terms of air travel? Actually, the, the, uh, the trip that I took to Greece has been quite pleasant. Uh, they, they've introduced some interesting uh, requirements. So from the European Union, you can actually travel as long as you've just pre-filled some of your forms. And my travel here has been uh, really seamless. Uh, it's, it's been quite straightforward. From other countries, they actually require people to take uh, COVID tests before departure. And I think that's actually a positive thing because it raises the confidence of people. So overall, I'm seeing a, a lot of the resorts here uh, at about 60-70% capacity. I think that uh, arriving at the country is uh, managed very well. They uh, check uh, the landing forms, they check a few other things, and, uh, and then they, they encourage uh, tourism to continue. Of course, tourism here is uh, managed uh, in a responsible way. So we're wearing masks in closed places but otherwise really enjoying the beauty of this country. Seven or eight months ago, what were we talking about? We were talking about over-tourism. We were talking about a looming shortage of pilots. We were talking about environmental impact and sustainable travel. And then the bottom fell out. And I guess there's an opportunity here, although nobody intended for it to be that, for the travel industry to sort of get a do-over, to try to start again and make some new rules and basically deal with those issues, but from the ground up. Are you feeling the same thing? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that we're seeing the early signs of uh, cooperation between government suppliers, providers, and travel sites, and predominantly from uh, the travelers themselves. They are looking to actually travel greener. They uh, are looking to go to less crowded places, more open doors. So I think it's uh, really the duty of the industry as a whole to actually try and change things, to look at things in a more sustainable way, to look at the communities we're traveling to and, uh, and make sure that we're assisting them as well. And in terms of uh, sustainability and over-tourism, we, for example, are looking at uh, options of how we can actually, when people make searches, offer like uh, secondary locations of where they can travel and some alternative ideas of uh, how can they uh, enjoy travel and, uh, and, and the experiences in the future. 
So basically, if we're, if we're calling it what we're going to call it, 2021 may be the year of Plan B. Yes, I, I, absolutely. It's a, really a, a special uh, opportunity that we have in the industry. And I, I think that uh, we all need to act responsibly. We have this unique opportunity. And uh, from what we're seeing is, uh, as I mentioned, there is really increased collaboration between all the entities to basically achieve this uh, more sustainable approach to travel. Although seven months ago, the airlines were in the black. They are getting amazing load factors. They are making huge profits. They wanted to fly everywhere and connect everywhere. And now it seems there's a race to the bottom to see which airline can shrink fast enough. So given that, I'm, I'm seeing in many cases reduced options for travelers. Is that what you're seeing as well? I think that overall, we, we're still going to see plenty of choice. Uh, the first early signs of recovery we're actually seeing from around the world, from low-cost airlines who are flying point to point. So it's relatively straightforward. They're very agile. They actually uh, are able to meet the, the demand in a very, very quick way. So that basically builds up a choice for the travelers. And I think that uh, also long haul, we will see more and more opportunities as demand returns. Because ultimately, we know from uh, the search statistics we're collecting and uh, from the intent of the users that they are looking to actually go, go back to travel. They're looking to get back to experiences, to connecting with people. So we, we don't think that uh, this actually will uh, be reduced. Um, some capacity will be taken out for sure. But uh, ultimately, all the exciting places that uh, people want to travel to and experience new experiences uh, will, will be there in the future for sure. Although in the short term, at least in this country, we're seeing a lot of flights that used to be nonstop uh, going away and sometimes taking one, if not two stops to get to where you want to go. Yes. Yeah, so what we're seeing now in the, in the States, for example, is uh, we're seeing uh, two trends. Uh, one of them is fly and drive. So people are still preferring to travel maybe um, just to one point and from there to continue with the, to fly to one point and then continue with the driving. And the second thing which is really interesting is that we're seeing a, a much bigger demand for one-way uh, travel. So people are going to take longer and they're going to keep their options open. And uh, it's really just in line with the, the changing uh, policies that uh, travelers are just enjoying the uh, flexibility that they're looking for. Either flexibility or fear. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the old days that you had to buy a round trip ticket and stay over a Saturday night, those days are gone. And people can keep their options open by just buying individual one-way tickets, right? Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that it fits basically the, the, the spirit of the times that we're in. And uh, they, they really um, value the, that flexibility and the airlines are offering this to them. The airlines are doing a few of, uh, additional really useful things for travelers, like uh, the three main U.S. carriers uh, removing the fees on change and cancellation exactly. uh, until the end of the year, for example. So those are really, really uh, um, very useful measures for travelers and uh, much appreciated by the travelers. My thanks to Moisha. So are you flying? Are you behaving and wearing a mask? Or are you showing up on your flight in a full hazmat suit? Frequent flyer and road warrior George Hovica talks with me about the real fear factor and some facts. Here's a question for you. Are you feeling nostalgic about flying? I am. You know, we talked about this on the show before about 
in Australia, Japan, and so many other places, they're now offering just flights to nowhere because nobody can get anywhere anyway. And the flights are selling out in like 30 minutes. You know, six-hour flights, literally just staying up in the air and coming back. People just miss that experience. Or are you really missing the way flying used to be? We always talk about the golden age of travel, and we talk about the golden age of travel as if it really was a golden age. Then we find out maybe it wasn't so golden after all. Maybe this is the golden age of travel, even in the wake of the pandemic. Well, joining us now, one of our regulars, a good friend of ours, uh, the, one of the founders of Airfare Watchdog, George Hoboka. Hey, George. <laughs> Why are you laughing, George? Um, it's a bit contrary to, to talk about the, the, the joys of flying. Uh, so many people don't want to fly now. Uh, I am flying. I have flown uh, within uh, the the U.S. Uh, and so I am 65 years old. I don't look it, of course. I don't sound like I am. But of, I course am. of course no, not. Of course not. Of course not. Neither do you. But um, I took my first flight at about nine months. And as my mother says, I was in diapers. She hated to fly. And me being in diapers probably was make, made it even more enjoyable. But during that decade, uh, several thousand people died in the 1950s uh, in commercial airline um, disasters. Um, in the 60s, when I first flew on a 707, which crashed 20 times during its lifetime, lifetime th- these are um, fatal and non-fatal crashes. Uh, 8,000 people died uh, on the ground and in the air due to a disaster. And yet we still flew um, in 1995, 2,000 people, over 2,000 people died, crew and uh, passengers, and yet we still flew. Now, I'm convinced that this year, 2,000 people will not die from COVID. I, I realize it is a very serious disease. It has long-haul complications for some people. But uh, now that we're wearing masks on flights, uh, they've been proven to be uh, a very good barrier against the virus. And I think we're overreacting. I really do. I think if we all wear our masks, flying is safer now than it was when I first started flying. Well, flying is safer now, regardless of the pandemic, than it was when you and I both first started flying. I've been in like I'm knocking on wood if I could find some here. Hold on. Here, you, you can. <laughs> okay, I've just knocked on it. Uh, I've been in three near fatal accidents, and I'm here. And, yep. and you know, before the pandemic, I was flying, what, 420,000 miles a year. So when you think about how many accidents I had versus how many flights I took, it was like you couldn't even measure it on the, on the scale. It was so small. And yet, you know, today people have fear of traveling. It's not just a fear of flying. And the fear that they have is not just getting on a plane or not just getting on a cruise ship or not just getting on a train or a car. It's getting somewhere yeah. and yeah. then yeah. and yeah. then being stuck and can't get home because yeah. somebody and, and, tested. And that has happened. So so but flying within in the US in, in most cases, unfortunately of course, you could um, encounter a quarantine for example, that New York State has imposed on some states like Virginia and California, and that is an issue. How strictly they are enforcing that is another question. But yeah, no, there have been flights that have taken off in Europe, and then they had to go back because uh, suddenly the country was shut down. I'm not, I'm not uh, denying that. I know there are risks, but um, I think my point is that there were worse risks back in the so-called golden age of uh, jet travel. Yeah, and you know what? I agree with you on that. I have taken a couple of flights during the pandemic. I did uh, two flights down to Florida. We did this radio show from there. Uh, I took a flight out to California. We did the radio show down in Oceanside, California. Uh, And I have to say that I did not feel unsafe in any way. I'm not talking about air safety. I was talking about my own personal medical safety on the plane. 
Um, and we have to be real about this. You know, airline cabins and social distancing are mutually exclusive. You can't widen the cabin. And it's nice to know that airlines like Delta and JetBlue and Alaska are blocking the middle seats. But when you really do the math and you do the measurements, if I'm in the window seat and you're in the aisle seat, George, the separation between us is still only 25 inches. What's the real key here is the air that's coming into the plane, the air that's being purged from the plane, and if we're being responsible, we're, we're wearing our masks. It's really as simple as that. And it is required to wear a mask. I think Delta has uh, banned several hundred people from uh, flying for them. I'm not sure if that's forever or just for a year. But um, masks do work. So there was an incident. I have a friend who's Korean. He reads the Korean press. There was a restaurant in Seoul where, uh, unfortunately, 15 people dining in a restaurant inside were infected uh, but only the diners, the uh, staff, the waiters were all wearing masks, and not a single uh, restaurant staff member contracted the virus. Masks do work. And this is when, when the diners were, were maskless, and supposedly uh, the masks are even more effective uh, for preventing the outpouring of virus than, than it is the absorption of virus. Um, and e- even just wearing the mask to prevent uh, absorption of the virus is, was effective. So, uh, you know, we, we've seen other um, incidents like that where um, the masks have been proven to be effective. And, yes, in a plane, people do take their masks off to drink and to eat. But as long as you're wearing your mask, you're probably safe. Yeah, listen, and the air nozzle above your head, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Air is brought into modern jet airplane cabins uh, through the engines at altitude, The air is very cold. It's like minus 60. It's heated by the engines. It's brought in. It's called bleed air. It's brought into the cabin. And then it's recirculated and purged out every three minutes. You don't even have that at home. Um, And as long as you sit there with the air nozzle uh, pointed right down at you, that is also going to start almost act as a sort of an aerial barrier to other spray that might be headed towards you. It pushes it away. The other thing, too, Peter, is that if if you're talking about contact tracing, there is probably no better environment to do contact tracing than in an airplane. We know your uh, email address. We know your cell phone number. We know where you sat. so if there were, I, there, there has been some uh, transmission, but um, as far as the actual um, uh, contraction of the virus, I mean, obviously the virus is in the, everywhere, but um, if there were uh, cases of uh, transmission, we would have heard about it by now. Now, there were some transmissions earlier before masks were worn. I think in Israel, there was a flight in, in Asia. I think in Vietnam, there was a flight where there was transmission before people wore masks. But now that people are wearing masks, I really think, I feel very confident that it's, I'm not going to catch something when I fly. You know, I have confidence as well. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, you just have to mitigate fear and then embrace common sense. Uh, That's what it is. You know, I get on a plane and somebody's not wearing a mask. I get off. Or I, or, I, or I talk to the flight attendant or the gate agent. Uh, and you're right. Delta has banned. If you, ask, if you add up Delta and American and United, in total, they've banned around 750 people from flying the airline. And as you said, we have no, long, we have no idea how long the ban is, but it ain't going to end tomorrow. That much we know. So, and those, those people should be banned. I mean, if, uh, if they're not playing uh, by the rules, they don't deserve to fly. Yeah, and, and it's not political, guys. It's common sense. Science. I mean, yes, 
And it's proven. It's proven. Uh, and it, it's, it's unfortunate that so many people think that it's an infringement on their rights, when in fact, it's just the opposite. If they don't wear a mask, it's an infringement on all our rights. And that has to be stopped. You have to listen to the science, and that protects all of us. And I, uh, George, I, I, I do yeah, believe that, 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 that there is danger in travel, but it's not in the air. I, I think if you're on the on the airport bus and people aren't wearing masks, um, if you're in um, a restaurant when you arrive and, uh, well, people have to wear, you know, obviously in a sure. restaurant, the air is not uh, filtered. But, through you, but you know what it is? But, George, but here's what it is. If you add it up, if you really took a little census here and added up the number of individual touch points from the time you want to go somewhere to the time you arrive, it's about 50. And yeah. each one of those requires you to be situationally aware and wear that mask. You know, George and I were talking offline about one of the unintended consequences of COVID-19, as we all were basically bordering on becoming barricaded suspects in our own communities, we started doing something we hadn't done in a while. We left where we lived and we started walking. We started walking around our neighborhoods. We started to look left and right and up and down. We weren't zipping by in an Uber or driving our own car. We literally realized how much we had taken for granted. Right, George? You know, Henry David Thoreau wrote in Walden, I have traveled a good deal in Concord, where he was born, the city of Concord or the town of Concord, uh, Massachusetts. And I think we can all do that now. Uh, I'm in New York this last few weeks, and I've been going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and standing in front of uh, a gallery full of Van Goghs, and Menets and Monets, with nobody except the guard in the, in the gallery. Um, if you if you have not explored your own community or or, or, or city uh, during this, because people are staying home, if you know, it's it's phenomenal because you can experience um, world class. Uh, I hate using that word, but uh, amazing, um, pheno- you know, cultural phenomena. Um, uh, like you'll never be able to do again. You will not, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, or, or come to New York, come to San Francisco, come to Los Angeles, come to Dallas, come to um, anywhere that has uh, culture or um, things to see, things to do, uh, and you'll be, you'll experience it like you've never done before and will never be able to do, I hope, again. Um, it's, it's just incredible. I'll tell you my story, and I've talked about this once before on the show, uh, I've lived in the same building in New York City that I've lived in since I'm six months old. I, I know that sounds bizarre, but <laughs> it's, it's true. And so I'm the perfect example of taking things for granted. Well, when you know the lockdown started here in New York, I started to walk because that you could do. And I started walking down, in fact, towards the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Fifth Avenue. And about five or six blocks from my house uh, at Central Park, Right before the engineer's gate, where you can walk in and walk around the reservoir, there's a bronze plaque. I'd never seen it. I just stumbled upon it one day. It was up against that wall, and I noticed it had been on that wall since like 1916. I'd never seen it. And the irony of it is that the day I discovered it was April 14th of this year. I'll tell you why that was significant. Total coincidence. So I walk up and I read the, the, the bronze plaque and who it's dedicated to. And it's dedicated to somebody named, who I didn't know who it was, initial W.T. Stead, S-T-E-A-D. 
wow, who's that? So I took out my cell phone. I took a picture of it. I said, I got to find out who this guy was because there are not that many bronze plaques on, in Central Park, especially on the wall on Fifth Avenue. So I get home and I was blown away. Remember I said the date was April 14th that I discovered this? Turns out W.T. Stead was on the Titanic. Yeah, and yep, I was going there. <laughs> yep, and he sank on the Titanic. He did not survive. And here I am as a journalist, not knowing who he was. He's the father of modern-day investigative reporting. Wow. This guy did all the muckraking, all the great investigative reports in England. He was on the Titanic coming to New York to attend a peace conference at the invitation of President Taft. Obviously never made it. But now I begin researching him and reading what he wrote and also reading what he liked to read himself. It's just fascinating. I never would have discovered that, George, had it not been for a lockdown in New York caused by COVID-19 that essentially forced me out of my comfort zone into rediscovering my neighborhood. People come from uh, France to, um, to see our attractions, our, our treasures, and people who live in our cities, New York or, or Chicago or Miami or wherever, uh, put it off. I'll, I'll, I'll climb the Empire State Building one day. Well, you know, the, the other day uh, I got a, a release from the people who do the Empire State Building um, uh, PR. There were hours when there was nobody there at the top of the Empire State Building. Can you imagine being at the top of the Empire State Building all by yourself with your loved one, with your girlfriend or boyfriend or... Um, it, and for it, those people, and for those people who are movie buffs, you know what you say? You yeah. got mail. You yeah, got mail. Exactly. <laughs> Once in a lifetime, people. You know, and we go, we go to Rome to see to see stuff, but we don't see our own our own uh, attractions. Uh, most of my friends here. I did a, a poll recently. Have you done the Circle Line? Have you have you biked through Brownstone, Brooklyn? Have you uh, gone to Ellis Island? Have you even taken? Um, Staten Island Ferry? Have you gone to the, the, the Met recently? Um, and, no. and the answer is most of them have not. No, I know. no, no, no. One day, one day. So this is, this is the day because you'll have it all to yourself. I, I, I don't like the term staycation. Now they're using daycation. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but George, <laughs> but, the most important thing is we've been given an opportunity not only to rediscover our neighborhood, but for at least the next six months to rediscover America. My thanks to George, to Moisha Rafia, and to Peter Canego. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to listen, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for continuous updates on breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.